Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to First Edition. Today on the show, I've got two segments. Up first, my colleagues and co-workers, Jen Northington and Sharifa Williams, have a side thing that they just released, Fit for the Gods, an anthology subtitled, and this is important, you'll hear about the subtitle, Greek Mythology Reimagined. I'm going to talk a little bit about the anthology itself, but really about what it takes to make an anthology, kind of a behind-the-scenes look at everything that goes into making an anthology. That's up first. Then up second, Professor Farah Kareem Cooper comes on to talk about her new book, The Great White Bard which is about thinking about Shakespeare, reading Shakespeare in the context of race. Really interesting book. I I ripped through it the other day. had a really great conversation with her. Those are the two segments today, so let's get into it. Okay, I'm here to interview folks with whom I am, regular colleagues, collaborators, co-conspirators, other C-words, Jen Northington and Sharifa Williams, who are the editors of the new anthology, Fit for the Gods, Greek Mythology Reimagined, out now from Vintage. And we're going to talk about the book by not talking about the book. Mm -hmm. What I thought would be interesting here, and not completely shamelessly internally shelf-promoting, I'm trying to like come get it in sideways, (laughs) is to talk about the anthology making process. And... I guess the caveat must be this, and you, you all can tell me if I'm wrong, is that there's no one way that anthologies are made. This is your experience. Jen, you've got a couple under your belt, Shreve, this mm. is your first one. So having said all that, I'm sure there's a lot of ways this is done. I want to talk about your process, really from ideation to pub and, and beyond here. So I'll start here, maybe maybe with you, Jen, because you co-edited with Swapna Krishna an mm-hmm. earlier anthology, Swordstone Table. That was your first anthology. I guess... It wasn't hard enough that you ne- you didn't swear it off. Talk to me about that sort of decision coming out of Sorenstone Table to do another one. It's funny, actually. I was just texting Sharifa about this because last <laughs> night as I was prepping for an event with our contributors for Fit for the Gods, I was like going back through email chains and I started talking about Fit for the Gods with people before Swordstone Table was even out. And I actually, mm. I didn't realize how much overlap there was. It was like... April or something, which is wild because we were still like three or four months out from Swordstone Table being published at that point. But I remember calling my editor, or excuse me, my agent. I remember calling my agent and being like, Kate, I want to do another one. And she was like, really? People do one. <laughs> and they never want to do another one because it is so much work. But I will tell you what I've told everybody. I cannot tell you no there is no rush like emailing a writer whose work you love and admire and being like will you write me a story and Mm. them saying yes like Mm. i I get chills just saying that out loud there is for me there is nothing like that feeling in the world and then finding stories that like you never would have found otherwise on top of that like when we did the open call for fit for the gods which we didn't do a swordstone table 
it's I can't I like I love it so much I love it so <laughs> much so I knew I wanted to do more and but Swapna is like writing her own books and so I was like who will do this with me I wonder who if I, I podcast do I yes. podcast with anyone <laughs> exactly. who's a good fit for this I like, who wonder. can I sucker into saying yes to this <laughs> who won't know any better than to say yes to me <laughs> and Sharifa wrote a story for Swordstone Table and obviously yes we've podcasted together for years we worked together for years I was like I'm pretty sure we will not hate each other at the end of this process <laughs> let me see if Sharifa is interested so did you bring the same, I don't remember, was Swords from Table vintage as well? It is, yes. We stay, yes, with, the we stay with the same. Okay. Yep. So is it largely the same team? And we'll come to you, Sharif, in a minute, know. but I guess if we're going to establish the foundation, Jen brought yes. a little of the team over. Talk to me about how getting an agent or was it, did you get an agent just for Swordstone Table? Is it harder to pitch an agent yeah. for an anthology? Like, how does that bit come together? We definitely, Swapna and I had to put together the whole query letter. This was not, we queried, I want to say three or four, which is actually nothing. That's nothing. You might have to query hundreds of agents in your life before you get an agent. So we actually were very lucky that both of us had worked in publishing for a long time. People knew our names. People would Mm -hmm. read or and or answer emails from us. But like our agent, Kate McKean, who's wonderful. She's at Moorhaime Literary Agency. She was like, yeah, I wasn't sure because anthologies, they don't earn a lot of money. They're off. They're never going to hit the bestseller list for the most part. It's very weird for that to happen. Very rare. And so they're not like a lot of bang for your buck, which agents need to make money too. But she liked the idea. We already knew what we wanted to do. And she knew that we knew people. So she's, I guess we'll try it. And we were lucky enough that Vintage and Anna Kaufman there, our wonderful editor, was super on board and really excited about it. And included in that first contract, we get first look at the next idea that you have for uh-huh. this. We actually didn't, so we went to auction for Swordstone Table. It actually went to auction a couple, two, two whole publishing houses were interested uh-huh. in it. Jen, that's all you, that. you only need two buyers need to two. make an auction. That's right. So you get two. And then, oh, I forgot where I was going with that. Oh, Bid for the yeah. Gods didn't go to auction because Vintage was like, yeah, we want it. Mm-hmm. Okay. Sharifa, Jen had laid down that piece for us. I've got an editor. We have an agent. Did you use the same agent? I don't If any of this we don't shouldn't talk about, let me know and I can cut it out. But how did that work, Sharifa, with you coming on board? What did you have to agree to? Where you just could tell that Jen was so high on her own <laughs> supply that you're like, you want to go along for the lie here? Or what was attractive to you about it? I Jen already had Kate on her side. So there was that. We did still have to write up a proposal and everything for Anna and for Vintage. We did have to do that, but when Jen came to me about the project, uh, yeah, she's right. I had no idea, but I was really curious (laughs) and I had seen, it looked from the outside like putting together Swordstone Table was really fun and I had a great time writing a story for it and it felt good to be asked to write a story And so I wanted to do some of that. I wanted to pass it along to other authors. And I, like the concept itself, Jen had a few ideas for what possibilities there were for subject matter for this uh, anthology. And all of them were super intriguing. But the Greek mythology one in particular was near and dear to my heart as somebody who grew up reading those stories and had favorites and definitely consumed as much 
content about and around Greek mythology as possible. Mm -hmm. It was the subject matter, I think, and knowing Jen and that she had been through the process and had, knowing how meticulous she is about (laughs) process and that there would be somebody experienced to help me along in creating and publishing an anthology was extremely helpful. I would not have gone into this with anybody, that's for sure. I guess I was going to ask about that, Jen, because are are co-edited anthologies that common? I don't read a lot of original anthology, so I don't know what's usual. I do the Best American stuff at the end of the year, and that has like a two-tier editorial process, right? There's initial screening, but then you get the more famous writer to come on to pick from the finalists. Uh, Did you ever consider, did you consider going by yourself or not? And and clearly you didn't, but why'd you end up saying, okay, I'm going to need another co-pilot here? Yeah, I literally never want to have to do one by myself (laughs) because it is so much work and you have so many there's so much coordination to do like we just have like spreadsheets on spreadsheets and there's a lot to keep track of there's a lot of reading if you do an open call like we did we read mm-hmm. between us five four hundred five hundred between four hundred and five hundred stories yeah. and mm. if I had to do that by myself like nope just <laughs> absolutely not and also not for nothing two brains are better than one I know people mm. who do anthologies by themselves I know people who do them in teams I don't think there's one right or wrong way to do one. It's just what you personally are capable of and comfortable with. But if I've learned anything over the years, it's that having another brain to bounce ideas off of, to help with the editing process, especially because I am not... I am learning to be an editor of prose, but that is not my training, right? That's something Mm. I'm learning as a part of doing this. And Sharifa has been editing as well as is a writer of fiction for years. She has experience that I don't have. She has perspectives that I don't have. She has sensibilities that I don't have. We know from SFFEA what my wheelhouse is versus what hers is and where the overlap is. And I want to have that 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 ability to get more than it would be if it was just me. So we've been dancing around how much work it is. So let's get into that a little bit. So this is, as you said, did you say for Swordstone Table, it wasn't an open call, Jen? It was, it, not, it was an not an open, open call. call. We solicited every single story in that anthology. Yeah. Okay. And I'm sure that's its own kind of thing, but let's it focus is. on this one for a second, because it seems to be a if not a higher degree of difficulty, a higher degree of bureaucracy, which maybe is one in the, <laughs> sa- one in the same thing to some degree. So you've got your agent. You've got a book deal, you got co-editors, you've got an idea. It looks like, I, they're not numbered, but they're, what, they're 15 stories? Yeah. It looks like, if I just am counting mm-hmm. correctly, 1 through 15, really advanced stuff from me here. Good job. <laughs> did you know Did you know how many pages you had to work with? Like, how is that, what are we looking for versus how much space are we going to get? Because it could be twice as long, it could be two-thirds as long. Like, how do you even know what the, sh- the size and shape of the vessel you're going to fill at this point looks like? Yeah, there's a pretty standard anthology, especially speculative anthology baseline that you're working okay. with. The stories are in your publishing pitch. You have to say this. And it's between 15 and 20 stories. The stories are 5,000 to 10,000 words each. And you have room to play within that. And But you really have to have a minimum. And then on top of that... 
you have to actually have the stories written when you pitch it to the public. You have to have some of the stories written. You have to go in with at least oh, three Oh, I don't stories. think I put that together. Yeah. So we had to find people who would agree to write us a story before we were sure it was going to get published or paid. And so Sharifa thankfully wrote one. And oh, then, there you go. Now I see why yes. Sharifa was so valuable here at the meeting. Oh, it's all coming to light here. Okay. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. I knew this. I found yeah. this out when we were doing Swordstone Table. Kate was like, sure. you need to have people write stories. And we were like, crap. Wait, so all 15 or you need no, proof of concept? No, you have to like, like three to five. Okay. Three to five. You have to have okay. three to five. Okay. So that the editor can see, do you like the same things I like? Do, do I think these stories are marketable? Are they publishable? Mm. Do you have names? And that's the other thing. You have to have names. You have to have capital N names. So you can't just do, yeah, I'm going to do an open call. We'll get 15 to 20 stories. Bada bing, bada boom. No, you have to have names that no. will sell the book. And then you can fill in with an open call. Right. But you absolutely have to have solicitations at the top. At least in my experience, you have to have, sure. okay, we're going to have Alyssa Cole. We're going to have whoever it is, like Alexander Chi, like for Swords and Table. Like you have to have some names that you actually right. have already confirmed and gotten them to mm. say yes to you before any money is involved to get the money Wait. to then pay them. Today's episode is brought to you by Gallery Books. So Anna Green thought she was marrying Liam West for access to subsidized family housing while at UCLA, which is an interesting reason to marry someone, but you know, in this economy. So anyway, she signed divorce papers when the graduation caps were tossed and she thought she was done. At she wasn't. Three years later, Anna is a starving artist living paycheck to paycheck while West is a Stanford professor. Now he is part of a conglomerate. His family owns this mega grocery store chain. He's not interested in working for them, but he is interested in those greenbacks, honey, that come in the form of a $100 million inheritance. To get it, he has to be married for five years. That's where our girl Anna comes back into play. So the two will fake a marriage, but as he gets to know her and gets to appreciate the feisty, foul mouth, paint splattered girl that she is, he'll begin to wonder if the money is worth the love of his life. Pick up The Paradise Problem by Christina Lauren to find out if it is. And thanks again to Gallery Books for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Bloom Books. Charming, easygoing, and rich, Xavier Castillo has the world at his fingertips. He also has no interest in taking over his family's empire, but that hasn't stopped women from throwing themselves at him. Unless, of course, the woman in question is his publicist. The cool, the intelligent, the ambitious Sloan Kensington, who is a high-powered publicist who's used to dealing with difficult clients, but none infuriate or tempt her more than a certain billionaire heir with his stupid dimples and laid-back attitude. She may be forced to work with him, but she'll never fall for him because he's a client and that's all he'll ever be, right? Right, girl, like we all know. So just in case you didn't know, author Anna Wong is the best-selling author and book talk viral author of the Twisted Love series, the King of Sin series. Miss Wong, gotta go on on, okay? Make sure to check out King of Sloth by Anna Wong. And thanks again to Bloom Books for sponsoring this episode. 
So I guess two questions come to mind. The first is, since you had already done Swordstone Table with the same team, did you also have to do three to five forfeit for the gods? We like, did, Or yeah. did Anna did. say, we need, uh, got to run it back. What have you done for me lately? Let's make sure you haven't gone off the, the deep end and you like weird stuff right. that won't move any units at all. Okay. So you had to do that again. And I guess going back a step, for those who don't know about pitching fiction, right, Nonfiction can be different. You can yeah. get a book deal off of something less than a full manuscript, and yeah. often you do. With fiction, that's not the case. You have a full manuscript. So it, it didn't occur to me that you would have to do something, if not have all 15 stories, you needed a proof of concept. And it's modular in a way that a novel isn't, right? Yes. Like the first third of a novel doesn't tell you as much because this two, the second two thirds are going to be <laughs> pretty important to, to the reading experience of that book. But since these are individual stories... Once you get, it sounds three to five kind of makes sense to me. It seems like it, the worst, the best compromise to make sure everyone's on the same page. So you do that. So are you going to that three to five with trusted people? Like you get Sharifa and you have a couple other people you're pretty sure will do it. How high do you just decide to reach? That must be a very touch and go process to decide who to pitch. Because you're basically saying, write this thing. It may not turn anything. And I don't have any money for you right now. I think we went with a mix of people who are like, Either we knew pretty well and also people we thought Mm -hmm. were big names that we just took a shot in the dark and gave it a try anyway. Because I remember asking a couple of people that I was not as like I, I barely had I had barely met them. I was not in constant conversation with them, but they were big names and it would have been amazing to have them on the list and be able to come through with a proposal that was like, we have this story from this big name author already. So you can trust us to, mm-hmm. to get this done. Mm-hmm. Um, so some of it was just like, and I, I feel like this is how a lot of the process was. It's just sometimes you have to, same with blurbs, you just have to ask the question and put yourself out there. But sometimes mm. you just need those people that you know and who know you and that you can count on to pull through, even though you can't make that much of a promise. And maybe they don't know that much about what the stories are, what this project is going to turn into. I learned one of the things I learned was like the importance of networking. (laughs) Is somebody who wants Mm -hmm. to come up, produce an anthology or do anything like this where you're required to reach out to authors knowing people and Jen is great with that between her career in book selling and with events and everything like that and then of course at Book Riot has a lot of connections and so for me it was a little bit more of a stretch because I am a terrible schmoozer and networker <laughs> and so the prospect oh Sharifa you, we've talked about yeah. this you and me both lady. yeah I know the prospect of having to reach out to people was daunting but it was actually quite surprising how people came through in yeah. different mm-hmm. ways yeah it's like you're almost a mini publishing company, right? Because you've yes. got to go source 15 stories and edit them. And we don't have to use specific units, of course. We can use, I don't know, Calamari Flan or something from the Star Wars universe to make it abstract. But you've got a certain budget, right? You're, you are managing yeah. the payments and all that stuff that goes into it. Jen, tell me, without giving away secrets or getting any people's pocketbooks, what is that like to be 
a de facto mini publisher yeah, yeah. for a, a lineup of 15. It was a real rude surprise with Swordstone Table when we were like, okay, so we have, we sold the book, we have the advance, and we were like, the publisher was like, okay, go line up your contributors. They sign contracts with you, not with us. So the contributors right. are actually signing, you have to come up with contracts. And then you have to pay them. Mm-hmm. And I was like, Kate, the agency handles that, right? And she was like, nope. <laughs> she helped oh. us. She provided boilerplate for the content that we then updated for the specific stories for each contributor. But like Sharifa and I were out here like issuing W9s yeah. in tax season. I was going to say, you're, you're shooting Sarah Galia at 1099. Yes, 100,000%. Oh that is part of what we had to do. <laughs> yeah. Um, and we did the open call, so what we paid people is not a secret. So it was 1500 right. per story. And we had to, yeah, you, we had to sit down. And this is the other thing that I don't know that people talk about is that your publisher splits your advance into at least three, if not four, payments. So Thanks. you are not getting the whole advance up front, and they tie it to the production schedule. So it could be like a year between segments of the payment. So Mm -hmm. not only are you managing that, but then you have to figure out the timing of when you can actually pay people and then make sure you have the dollars to pay them when you said you were going to Mm -hmm. based on when you get your advance money. So it's like very, it's a lot of, again, like so much logistics and spreadsheets and tracking of things. You are in fact a mini publisher. You are the go between the contributors and the publishing house. And I think there are other anthologies that are edited by that are created and edited by an editor at a publishing house and obviously that's different. Right. Yeah, if you're a full-time employee, yes. they could yeah. Yeah, yeah. figure that out. It's different. Sure. But for us, we are the go-between. And so we had to figure out, okay, do we split people's payments into two? Do we pay them all in one? Like how do we right. manage the money? It's a whole situation. Is it a factor at all in I mean, I know you're trying to get a good mix of people and stories and you want it to be a good reading experience and something that will sell. Does it occur to you at all when you're deciding who to include or who maybe to wonder about how easy it is you think it is going to be to work with them in this process? Does that factor in at all? Um, I don't remember having as much discussion about working with specific authors or contributors Mm -hmm as much as trying to get a good mix of stories and reaching out okay. to people yeah. we really admired and then choosing stories from the open call submissions that we really love. Because with the open call, especially, you can never tell. You don't know a lot of these no. people. Right, you don't yeah. know them. So right. you're just like yeah. taking a guess yeah. and just making it work based on their story. And I feel like with this collection, we were so lucky because we had great contributors who not only gave us amazing stories, but also were really excellent to work with. And I yeah. I was expecting some big challenges in the production part of this process, but I was blown away by how cooperative and collaborative Mm. all of the contributors were with every stage of this process. I will say the other thing that was interesting about the open call is that it wasn't just new writers. Valerie Valdez came in through the open Mm. call. Suleika Snyder came in through the open call. People who I would not have even thought to ask but had read their work 
submitted to that open call. And that was like, I was, I was like flabbergasted. Mm. I was like, oh, they get work this way too. They're not just out right. here dictating. Swimming in a yeah, pile exactly. of uh, calamari <laughs> flan backwards. Exactly. Yeah. And we were trying to pay at or above market rate. And sci-fi mm. and fantasy in particular, there's not a lot of money. Yeah. We had several emails from people being like, is this a typo? You mean $150 per story, right? Mm. And we were like, nope, that's not what we mean. But And obviously it's not just about the money. Clearly, everybody who submitted to the open call found the premise compelling, which is a huge shot in the arm, too. It's, is anybody going to want to do this? And then we had, we could have made four anthologies, Jeff. We could have mm. made so many. I guess I was going to ask that, too. Did anyone have one in the chamber? Like, people had these ideas ready to go? Did people email you during the open call to say, is this the kind of thing? Is it really, here's an open call, and then you just get a bunch of completed stories? Or is there any back and forth in the open call process for people to fill to feel you out. I guess there's the, is this a typo? But is there anything on the content side where no. people are trying to get some sense of what you're looking for or am I on the right track or is this the kind of thing you're interested in? Yeah, we tried to phrase the open call really explicitly to be like, okay. here's what we're asking for and we are not mm-hmm. going to email you about it <laughs> because we knew our <laughs> limits. We knew our limits. And I, mm-hmm. I even had an autoresponder set up for the email inbox that was like, here are answers to like the questions you might be asking. Is this a typo? No, it's not a typo. What about this? Uh, it's up to you. What about this? It's also up to you. Send us a story. The end. Because we just were not, we didn't know how many people were going to submit. And right. we didn't want to be in the position of if we had a lot of submissions, which we did, having to manage the responses as well as the selection process. So we were very, I think other people might do it differently, but we were extremely just send us this, your interpretation of this prompt. I had no idea. Yeah. I, I could mean, not have guessed at the volume of submissions. We ended up getting, but I remember the days of parsing through applications to be a contributor for Book Riot and just how realizing how unsustainable it can take up your entire life and work to do those back Mm -hmm. and forths. And I always wish there was a way to make it happen because I know that sometimes that advice or those words are invaluable, especially to Mm -hmm. new writers, but It is just looking at the volume of submissions. It would have been impossible. Yeah. Then you have work to do. Talk to me about the winnowing process. (laughs) You have, you said hundreds. What are the stages of trying to figure out how to get to 15? Or how many are you even trying to get to if you have a range? Like, what was the funnel like? How did you manage that? I was trying to go back in my mind and remember exactly how this went. But I know we split the stories up. We did not initially look at the contributors. We just looked at the stories themselves, if I'm not mistaken. And then... Yeah, we had everybody submit two versions, an anonymous version and then a version with your name and bio. And then we came together with the stories we had selected from the pool. And then it became a process of where does this fit in our table of contents as it stands right now? What genres are we missing? Because we really want it to be diverse in every sort of way. Like, as far as we didn't just want it to be speculative fiction, science fiction and fantasy. We wanted a mix of genres, tones, Mm. like getting some comedy in there and some tragedy, all of the things. Um, And so it was a real process once we came together of 
figuring out which of those stories would actually making it make it in and get it down to this small number from this rather large number. So it took a lot of conversation and brainstorming and looking at spreadsheets again to come to our final yes. list. Jen, you, you you know your way around a spreadsheet, <laughs> I, I've been told. Yeah, we've we've all done some code spreadsheeting, so I, I know you guys are are really good at doing that kind of stuff. All right, so we're going to magically Wayne's World 2. We have our 15 or 20 candidates. Then you begin your editing process. Where do you start mucking around with people's stories? Is it before you're picking? Uh-huh. Are you figuring out, like, we, we want this one, but we know where this one's going to need more work? Or is it once you've signed uh, their 1099 documentation <laughs> that you really get out the knife and fork and start eating? <laughs> Yeah, no, we we picked the stories we had picked from the open call, which those were completed stories. And in the meantime, we still had solicited stories being written. Right. Right. Because we had also, you have to have names, so you have to ask those people. And so we had asked in the, that's two thirds to one third is that there needs to be like two thirds name and then one third you can do Two thirds names. Two, two thirds names. names. Okay. Yeah, it has okay. to be. Yeah. And that's a tricky balance to pull together. This is why we didn't include more of the open call stories. Truly, we would have... I would just, Mm. there were so many good ones, but we could only have a few. We could only have so many. Mm -hmm. And so you've, you've got X number of finished stories, and then you've got X number of stories that are still in the process of being written. And we really didn't do more than two rounds of edits with anybody, though. I, and as I was looking at the open call in particular, I was open to taking a story that I was like, oh, the bones are so good, but it needs X, Y, and Z. But we didn't, I didn't really even feel like, we had to. I, there were so many stories in there that were so polished, so ready to go, so good, so good. And I really, the same was true of our solicited stories. It didn't take more than two rounds to get anything in publishable shape. Um, and But it is a layered approach. So we each would like, we took, we split them up. And then one of us would do the first round of edits and send it to the other one. And then the other one would do another round of edits. And then they would go to our editor at Vintage and she would do a third round. And then we would write an edit letter. We would consolidate the edits needed and oh, send God. it okay. to I didn't the think about contributor. That. So it's a lot of bureaucracy, but it feels if you're organized, then at least you know what the hoops are yes. and to jump through and, how, and you get it put together that way. Talk to me a little bit about even stuff like ordering what order the anthology? It seems Agony. one of those things that I can imagine. Agony. It's one of those things that a reader probably doesn't think about. But if you've made anything for public consumption, you realize that order feels like it matters, but also maybe it doesn't at all. But also if it's something you can control, so you scrutinize it, right? Or, or am I off base on how this goes? This was such a challenging part because it's so much based on feeling it out, feeling out the table of contents mm. and the order of things. And, you know... Everybody comes at it differently and with different ideas. And Jen and I took an initial stab at it and, of course, then had to bring it to our editor. And I think even Kate chimed in as well Yes, about order. So Mm. there were all these Mm -hmm. ideas and just getting it right, like figuring out... I think that it it did come down in a big way to tone and genre and making sure there was a mix and also that the stories that followed each other lent to each other in some way. And we were giving a a good reader experience to a reader who reads an anthology front to back and doesn't skip around. So it was really, that was one of the hardest things because it was so based on feelings and there wasn't like 
a specific thing, a specific template. This was like, like you're saying, Sharif, it's 100% vibes based. Yeah. And we had, Sharif and I had a call, we had a Trello, we were like moving yeah. things around. <laughs> and then we had this big group call with Anna and Kate and ourselves. And what if we put this one here? No, that can't go there because this one needs to go there. Okay, what about that? Whereas with the Swordstone table, it, we fell into an, it was like oh it's going to be chronological because King Arthur is the once and future king and we have oh there you go past yeah, present yeah. and future stories so bada bing bada boom here's the one section here's the now section here's the future section e the end it was so easy so actually nice. to put Swordstone Table together so I was not this was the part I was prepared for almost everything else except for the open call because I hadn't done that before but everything else I was like I know how this is going to go but I didn't even think about how hard the story order was. Gonna to be so that was a real that was oh it was just agony so a couple of questions occurred to me as we've been talking since you wrote the 1099s and you're basically buying the stories from the authors do you have rights to republish them like a, a publishing house are there your exclusive rights or no. can they do other things with them yeah okay. the okay. standard for short stories is there's like a exclusivity window so i think ours is like 18 months mm. from date of publication yeah and okay. then after that the writers can resell them republish them they can do whatever we want and we actually have we had a reprint in each Swordstone table and Fit for the Gods, and we were able to get those rights because those rights had already reverted back to the author. We didn't have to go to a publishing gotcha. house for those rights. So the authors own the rights. The authors own the rights after a certain window of from initial publication and can do whatever they want. So like Sarah McLean is a great example of this. She already turned her story from Swordstone Table into a separate standalone ebook. So right. you can buy that story by itself from her, which is great. There's that's I think that's great. What else might people be interested in putting together an anthology that you didn't know about, that's fun, that's tough? What is, what's the rest of the secret sauce? Anything else that comes to mind? Um, I think that the part that I really enjoyed, once the edits were done, because there was like, it feels like the editing process is longer just because things are so staggered. Yes. And you also have co- things mm. like copy edits and all that stuff. One of the mm-hmm. things that was... Not so surprising to me because I was warned by Jen about this was how tight the turnaround time can be with the audiobooks yeah. specifically mm. and like oh getting gosh. things like pronunciation oh, right. guides from the contributors. It was like I was shocked that people turned yeah. most of the people turned in their pronunciation guides as quickly as they needed to which was super fast during i think this was all in the summertime so when people were starting to really take their vacations that was a nerve-wracking part of it for me but it was it's so worth it because (laughs) they did such a great job with the narrator selection and everything i was so happy with that but it was shocking to me how quick the turnaround time on audiobook stuff is I did. I was like, Sharifa, this is going to be, this is the trickiest bit. Because this is the other thing is that you can't predict when you're going to get that email from the audio production team. So it could be on a weekend. Mm. It could be after business. Like it's, there's no guarantees that it's going to be nine to five on a weekday. And then, yeah, you maybe get two weeks. You maybe get 48 hours before they're going to start 
production and like they're going to put somebody in a studio to start reading the story. So you have to turn around the pronunciations. You don't know how much time you're going to get. And this is just, it's nobody's fault. I'm not pointing fingers. This is just, I don't know what the process is like on their end. I can only assume it's really complicated and stressful. And this is why those deadlines are the Mm. way they are. But it's a lot to ask. And I was just, we sent out a preliminary email to everybody at a certain point because I was like, okay, like they're starting to work on the audiobook. We don't have requests yet, but we're going to have them. And you may not have much turnaround time. So if you want to start thinking about this now, like now's the time to start thinking about how certain words in your story are going to be pronounced. And then sure enough, like some people got two weeks, some people got two days. Like that's just what happens. Did you go to Emily Wilson and say like in Sharifa's story, like, how do you say the main ads like that diphthong that is do we agree upon this or do you just have to take a shot and yeah like some of the stories had like portuguese tag tagala there's all kinds of language right. there's spanish like there's all kinds of languages represented there in this collection because that's that was the point right that that's was the, the point, point. Right. and some of it is just research-based some of it is they it, prh has an in-house style guide for this stuff to a certain mm. degree and then if a contributor has like a strong preference about something they can express that in their their pronunciation guidelines and they did have an expert for the ancient greek yes parts of it at least so if we didn't have something specific to give them for those words right. they could rely on their expert which was really helpful because I have no idea how to pronounce this. I did not think of that, and that's why I asked the question, because yeah. I knew there would be some <laughs> hidden secret heart thing that I would have yeah. imagined. The pronunciation guide for the audio book. Jen, yeah. get us out. Well, one last thing. Oh, no, I have two things. Two things, Jeff, if I can have two sure. things. Yeah, one is subtitles are a lot harder than I <laughs> want them to be. Subti- and you have to have one. You can't not have one. You ha- They require it. And so we went through a few rounds with this subtitle, because also marketing has to sign off on it. So you can have one that you love and editorial might like, but if marketing doesn't like it, it's back to the drawing board. And then the second thing is I always have a shoulda, woulda, coulda with these because of course, like we're human, we're not going to do anything perfect the first time or the second time or maybe even the third time. And so one of the things that was like seems blindingly, obviously, in, in retrospect, but we were really focused on the forest and not the trees is that we don't have Mm -hmm. any Greek writers in this anthology, Mm. which feels like, again, pretty obvious in retrospect that would have been nice and important to have included them. So that's something I'm like, if I could add two more stories or three more stories, I totally would do that. Not to, I would not lose any of them because I love these stories and I'm so proud of the work and, and how like the breadth and the range of interpretations and reinterpretations is just, oh, I love it so much. Mm. But that's something I would have done over if I could. Yeah. If I'm reading the timetable, you've already have your idea for your next anthology. Yes. <laughs> and someone in your inner orbit is just wait. It just doesn't even know they're going to get an email. Actually, they uh, know. Zapping they them do like know. Oh, they know. Okay. All right. Sharif- I ask you this. Again, this is my problem, Jeff. I keep p- p- picking people who have their own books to write. Sharifa has her own books to write. She doesn't necessarily right. have the time to do anthologies on top of actually writing her own. So I'm just going to keep pestering her for stories Which is what's going to happen. <laughs> Which is fine. and But yes, I, do, I have two or three ideas for the next one, and I just have to talk somebody into doing it with me. <laughs> well, I appreciate your interest in me joining you to do an anthology of, <laughs> Dune, of Dune vignettes, but unfortunately, I must politely decline. Okay. Uh, I'm that, I, I have best. to strike that off the list. That's a bummer, Jeff. That's yeah. a bummer. <laughs> yeah. Okay. 
Sharifa Williams, Jen Northington, their anthology, Fit for the Gods, colon, Greek mythology, re- <laughs> Greek mythology reimagined. Want to give it the shine since it took the sweat. Thanks for both of you for joining me. Best of luck with the book. Go check it out wherever books are sold. Links in the show notes. Fit for the Gods, out now. Today's episode is brought to you by Bloom Books. Diana Dixon has a busy summer and no time for tall, gorgeous hockey player Shane's shenanigans. Because you know what? If they shenan once, they'll shenan again. So she thinks she knows exactly who he is when he moves into her apartment building. But turns out Shane's sick of hookups and tired of being on the rebound after his long-term girlfriend called it quits. But when his ex comes back into the picture, he needs a plan. And who better to play his new girlfriend than his sassy new neighbor? So a a fake relationship might be perfect for Diana's own ex issues, but Diana is used to living by the rules. Will she learn that when it comes to love, rules are meant to be broken? Make sure to check out The Dixon Rule by L. Kennedy. L. Kennedy is a New York Times and USA Today bestselling author with over a million copies of her books sold. So this is going to be another banger, y'all. Make sure to check it out. And thanks again to Bloom Books for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Avid Reader Press. So this next book is a really fun sounding mashup of different genres. There's a little time travel, a little romance, a little spy thriller action going on. So in the near future, a civil servant is offered the salary of her dreams and is shortly afterward told what project she'll be working on. A recently established government ministry is gathering quote unquote expats from across history to establish whether time travel is feasible for the body, but also for the fabric of space time. This is an exquisitely original and feverishly fun fusion of genres and ideas. The Ministry of Time by Colleen Bradley asks, what does it mean to defy history when history is living in your house? Colleen Bradley's answer is a blazing, unforgettable testament to what we owe each other in a changing world. It kind of gives Outlander meets Cloud Atlas or If the Time Traveler's Wife was written by Sally Rooney or Colson Whitehead. Make sure to check out The Ministry of Time by Colleen Bradley. And thanks again to Avid Reader Press for sponsoring this episode. Time now for my conversation with Professor Farah Kareem Cooper about her book, The Great White Bard, How to Love Shakespeare, while talking about race. She's a frontline scholar in this regard. She's the director of education at Shakespeare's Globe Theatre in London and a professor of literature and Shakespeare studies at King's College London. So a public intellectual about Shakespeare. And uh, if you know Shakespeare at all, you, you're going to find this really interesting to listen to. She's got a lot of interesting things to say. Again, the name of the book is The Great White Bard, out now from Viking. Uh, here we go. I think a lot of people come to Shakespeare like that statue in Westminster Abbey, right? Genuflecting before the marble Mm. visage of the bard. And one of the things you do early in the book, I think before you get into these sort of the close reading examinations of the plays Mm. or characters itself, is talk about how the bard was, quote unquote, made, constructed, deified, edified. Can you talk about why that's important to keep in mind? I think it's important because a lot of people say Shakespeare was pre-colonial, so you can't decolonize Shakespeare. And Shakespeare's exempt from all of that. Shakespeare, the man himself, we don't know very much about, but Shakespeare 
Shakespeare as the kind of iconic author was really embroiled in the colonial moment, which is roughly around the 18th century when England starts to really make way in the slave trade and starts to become super wealthy and is building an empire, essentially, which becomes the British Empire all the way through the 19th century. And Shakespeare is really central to that project. And I think that Shakespeare, that sort of elite universalist white icon of excellence is the Shakespeare that a lot of people are introduced to. They think that's Shakespeare. And so it seems like for some communities, I don't belong. That Mm -hmm. Shakespeare isn't welcoming to me. I don't understand it. I have to come up to this plinth, this statue, and this sort of monument. And it feels it feels wrong. And the reason I think it's wrong is because I've been based at the Globe since 2004. And I run a master's program there. And a we talk a lot about theater history, about mm. the Shakespeare who made the plays. And that's a very different guy. That's a guy who was involved in a very scrappy industry. The plays were not sacrosanct. The folio hadn't been published yet. And so I think if Shakespeare were alive today, he'd look at that 18th century construction and just find it really bizarre. One of the lines I really like in your book the best is, you just, there's no easy answers here. I've always found it to be a bit ironical that for some, for a, a writer of no easy answers, to become a monument is such a strange mm-hmm. contradiction to, to some degree. And I wonder if you could yeah. talk for a minute about like the uses of Shakespeare's own biographical sketchiness and making him into sort of a a secular saint. Because it's weird that some people think, well, they want to argue that Shakespeare didn't exist. But at the same time, there's only one author that if you go into an English department, a professor might be dedicated just to that person's work and it's Shakespeare. I think it goes back to the kind of the way he was constructed. So he is, if you look at the writing about Shakespeare in the 18th century and 19th century, he becomes the sort of holder of all wisdom, the oracle almost. He's a god. You, He's actually read out in next to sermons or biblical texts right. in churches in the 19th century. So he is almost next to God. And so how can that person not provide all the answers? Right. And there are answers in his work, but the answers come so individually to Mm. people. And I think that's the kind of magic of the plays. And I think that's why they survive so long and why Mm. people continue to wrestle with them. And that's why they're part of the colonial project was sending Shakespeare out into the rest of the world. But the rest of the world appropriated Shakespeare. And and now Shakespeare speaks for them. And of course, when the British left the rest of the world, they stopped policing how Shakespeare was used there. Mm -hmm. And so Shakespeare became completely adaptable. And I think it's because of that notion of, listen, I'm going to ask questions. And that's what I love about Shakespeare's work is the searching nature of the plays, not the definitive, here's the answer. But in the 18th century, he became the person with all the answers. And the answers to their questions was always about white subjectivity, Mm. uh, masculinity, civility, taste, aesthetics, genius, and all of that is is has been imposed upon us ever since, really. There is, I guess, on two poles of reacting to Shakespeare as presented as a monolith or a monument. One is to keep him in marble, to genuflect, mm-hmm. to reify, to see the idea of Shakespeare in the work as self-evidently amazing without question. Just take it or leave it. It, it, it is. And the other is to really oversimplify, can be dismissed with one of the modern chestnuts of dead white guy. 
right? Yeah. Post-colonial dead white guy. You're proposing, I'm not sure if it's a third, it's a different kind of way, which is engagement. And the verb yeah. you use of the kind of engagement is is love, right? Because to come mm -hmm. to the texts, because that's what we're coming to, honestly, we come to the text yeah. with love. I have to admit a little discomfort with that word, even mm -hmm. though I love Shakespeare. What do you mean by it? And, and what kind of attitudinal shift does that engender? And what does it do for us to think of love as a verb? I guess I'm thinking about it as if people say, I love Shakespeare, nine times out of 10, it means I worship Shakespeare. Yeah. And so I'm just asking people to reframe what they think they mean by love. If you love your wife or your husband or your partner, you're not necessarily worshiping them, at least not all the time. <laughs> I'm married. So I right. know. Yeah, yeah I was going to say, I, let's stipulate for the moment that's most people, not most people's experience of being a romantic <laughs> couple. Exactly. So it's, what do you mean by love? And that's what I think I'm really asking people to interrogate. If you really love Shakespeare, then loving him in the worshiping way is actually what he was quite bothered by. If mm. you read his plays when he talks about the way you're supposed to love somebody, if you take As You Like It, Orlando's walking around writing really bad poetry and really not engaging with the woman herself. And Shakespeare's really just constantly hammering this point about how to love. And he would find it aggravating if people were worshiping at the sort of feet of his statue. Beatrice and Benedict, my favorite Shakespearean couple and a lot of people's favorite, they're jibing and barbing, right? Yes. They're sharp edges and they're play fighting. And it does yeah. feel like that's the invitation is come meet me where I am and let's see what you got. Um, yeah, to, to yeah, exactly. And I think those two poles of how to respond to Shakespeare are related. So as mm. long as we're, if we're going to keep thinking about Shakespeare as this monolith and as this sort of universal genius and really a testimony to white supremacy, then of course, you're going to have people right. who are going to respond really badly to it. Right. And so you could get rid of both of those views by just being really critically engaged. Yeah. If this stipulation one is that this is not a fixed body of whatever, mm. then you have a different mode of engagement. But if you stipulate this yes. is the package, then you have to decide whether to accept it or reject it. Do, do I want yeah. that pa package or not? Yeah. I was reading through the book yesterday. And one thing that occurred to me, and I don't know, I don't think you, forgive me if you mentioned this mm. in the book, but the the sequence of plays you go through starting with Titus the the first mm. if you if this was your only shakespeare experience right you pick up your book mm. you would be like of course this is all about race right mm. it's so in these plays there's another version of this and i think it's the most common one and i'll speak from my own experience of like suburban good but public schools you're reading hamlet macbeth romeo and juliet the lears maybe a henry maybe a caesar a comedy or two, and that's it. And that trajectory feels a lot different. And mm. I, do you think those things are related, that those are not as race-forward or as race-conscious or as race-complicated as these books are? Is that why these are the ones that I get taught in my John F. Kennedy high school, because they don't have racial complexity? Or is that some other quirk of history? I think that you raise a good point. I hadn't thought about that question, but it, that's an interesting question. I do, th I do think that even the plays that are referred to as the race plays, the one that I go right. through, are not necessarily seen as race plays. I still hear Fair. people say that Othello Fair. is not about race. Yeah, they, exactly. And also, there are people who are saying that there's no evidence that Caliban was black. We don't know. We do know he was indigenous, which means mm -hmm. he's been othered and means he's not white. Right. Some people don't like to see that play through a colonial frame either. And I think there is a tendency to bracket Shakespeare from race either way. Yeah. And I think we make a mistake when we try to say race is a topic. 
And so therefore, <laughs> we need to talk about this as a topic. No, race right. is actually a context. It's a condition of being. I am raced. You are raced. Right. It is a set of circumstances under which we read these plays. Mm. And it's also a set of circumstances under which they were written. Yeah. So there is racial uh, complexity in all of the plays. There's a fantastic book out now called Black Hamlet, written by Ian Smith, who's a Shakespearean race scholar. Uh, it's an academic book, but it's really accessible. And he does this really interesting excavation of Hamlet and Blackness. Mm. And once you see it, you realize, oh my God, we have been reading Hamlet purely through yes. a white lens, a white masculine lens, that mm. this is seen as a a holy grail of literature because it, it centers the the white elite male experience. There, there's a piece too of reading Shakespeare through the context of race, especially later in my life when I'm older and I know a little bit more, I feel like a little more of the world, that it really, it really complicates even my own understanding as someone who feels like enlightened about racial issues mm -hmm. because yeah. it, it doesn't use the language we use. The, yes. geo the geopolitics of the day, like, is Cleopatra white? Maybe not. Like even the language escapes, especially in the United States, a white black binary, or I mm -hmm. guess more, more actually a white non-white binary. Yes. And there's gradations yeah. in Shakespeare, starting with Titus, that I think are hard are harder for someone in a modern American setting, and I can only speak to that, to map onto our current understandings of race. Mm -hmm. But if I can get past that, I find it generative to think, oh wait. This is a world of race and racist thinking and racialist thinking that's so different than mine. It very undermines the idea of fixity of race. Let's pick Cleopatra, right? Because people, mm. that's a figure that often doesn't get brought up when talking about race in Shakespeare, as you mentioned, because of, I'll let you, why, why doesn't Cleopatra get brought up even though we're talking about Egyptians, we're talking mm. about North Africa, we're talking about foreigners and Romans? How did this happen with Cleopatra? A very complicated figure. And I found the one I was most drawn to or most fascinated by the, the character of Cleopatra, but also the casting of Cleopatra or cultural mm. ideas of Cleopatra. Yeah. I think to go to the original part, of, the early part of your question, I would say that you're right, that race is different now. Obviously, there are meanings that race has acquired over the last mm -hmm. 400 years that didn't have the same impact back then. The foundations for racial thinking and ideas of difference mm. were laid down in the Middle Ages and the Renaissance period, and even some argue in the classical period when they inherited these templates for thinking about difference. And of course, Cleopatra is transported to the early modern moment through Plutarch, right? <laughs> and Plutarch writes elsewhere about Egyptians being hor horrendous and, and worshiping animals and things like that. So Plutarch's kind of racist by our standards, mm -hmm. really. The interesting thing about Cleopatra is she is one of Shakespeare's most muscular female characters. And I think that it's boy actors, obviously, were the first ones to perform her. And then when women started performing in Shakespeare in the uh, restoration period, it became a hugely remarkable, challenging, iconic moment in an actress's career. Mm. And let's face it, in the US and the UK, you've had majority white actresses filling that space. Right. And so she becomes co-opted as a white character. And even in Shakespeare's own time, when there were lots of different kinds of ideas about Cleopatra and who she was, 
uh, in some texts, she's a, a black woman. In some texts, she's certainly not white. Uh, and then in Renaissance portraits in, in Italy, she's very white. She's got that sort of pale, fair luster of the ideal elite form of whiteness, um, even though she's highly sexualized. It's it, lots of people over the centuries have been grappling and also contesting about race through Cleopatra. What I'm trying to say in my book is that it's time to recognize that Shakespeare used the word black and he used the word tawny. So he means someone dark. And he and with that comes all the associations with black womanhood that we still have to this day that are incredibly damaging, but also were around in Shakespeare's time, that black women were more sexualized, that black women were there for uh for fun, for, for mm-hmm. playfulness. And that even that's still with us. That's ubiquitous today. Shakespeare's giving you all of the packaging thinking around race. So it's a very binarized world. The Romans are very masculine, clean lines, austere. Right. The women of Rome, like Fulvia and Octavia, are virtuous, quiet, silent. The ideal woman in the Renaissance period was ideal, chaste, and si- was chaste, silent, and obedient. Mm. And that's what they are. Cleopatra, she she none of those three. None of those three. <laughs> none of those right? three. Right. She's independent. She's been married. She's a queen. She's sexualized. And the language participates in her exoticization and her sexualization. And I think that Shakespeare's giving you those binaries just in those qualities. And he doesn't have to say, oh, look, she's black over and over again. He just needs to say it once or twice. But the associations are there. And Antony becomes tainted by that reputationally, by his association with her. And so it's really obvious. But for years, people have just insisted that they're going to put white actresses in that role. And I'd like to see that becomes like the new Othello role, where you're never going to put a white actor in that role again. But I just don't think that's going to happen. I'm going to go back to to Titus just for a second, because you mentioned that's the first Shakespeare play. It's co-written. Maybe the first part wasn't Shakespeare. Anyway, the best textual scholars better than I, and Mm -hmm. that you mentioned that you've done yourself. No, but it's brutal. And I think this idea of discomfort that you introduced Mm -hmm. with Titus was really useful to me. I don't even know. I don't know if being okay with discomfort is even the right phrase, but discomfort is part of the game. Well, why is that a useful strategy here? I think it's interesting because I like to distinguish between discomfort and harm, right? Mm, so if fair. you go into a theater and you are harmed by it, you probably shouldn't go back in there. Yeah. But if you're made uncomfortable, that is a learning moment. That's a moment of kind of self instruction, right? And what, why am I uncomfortable here? What's making me uncomfortable? So if the, if it's a play that does center sexual assault and that's an experience you've had in your life, then you could be harmed by yes. that experience. So I'm, I am really distinguishing between fair. those totally two ideas. Yes. And I think in Shakespeare's time, you were uncomfortable all the time. It was just nobody was entitled to comfort. And we live in a world where we feel like we should be comfortable all the time. We have the modern comforts of technology. We've become used to this notion of comfort and that we deserve it and we are constantly seeking it. Mm -hmm. And so when you are jarred by discomfort, then you feel offended. And and actually what I'm trying to, I I think the reason why I I bring up discomfort is because people feel really uncomfortable talking about race and it makes them think all sorts of things and feel all sorts of things about themselves, about their ancestors or whatever it is. 
And actually, the levels of comfort in your life create a a false sense of comfort, if that makes sense. And that actually, if it's not going to harm you in any way, then maybe you could lean into discomfort a little bit because it might lead to progress, Mm -hmm. whether it's social progress or even personal progress. Because there's another way, there's another worship way of doing Shakespeare, which is to be an apologist or a reducer to say race is there, but he gets it all right. There's race in Shakespeare, but he's a modern guy and you can read it and it's all cool. He's cool. You don't do that because it's not that simple. There's treating characters of color with complexity and fullness. Mm. And then there's very prejudicial language, even more embedded into some of the other plays in sonnets. Yeah. And that's hard to live with, right? Because we have so many cultural options to choose from. Mm. We can curate our own cultural experiences. Yeah. And I am sympathetic to the tendency, and I'm sure I do this in other areas, where something makes me uncomfortable or I think maybe it's problematic or I just don't want to deal with it, I shunt it to the side. And I can understand that. I think what's hard to explain, what's hard to then reconcile is what do you get out of it, right? Is there a selfish way of thinking about, okay, what do you get out of engaging with something that doesn't neatly fit into your intellectual comfort zone, that doesn't present ready-made modern appearances? Because I, I think if that's this, what's great about Shakespeare now, and it's not just Shakespeare himself, of course, or the text, but we have a long history of engaging with Shakespeare, right? You're entering into a rich world of scholarship, of performance, of yeah. an interpretation. And it to me, that feels as important as I don't know as important, but that's part of the that's part of the package. Yeah, I think a lot of people. I was at a festival here in England, and somebody asked me, "Is hasn't Shakespeare had enough attention? <laughs> and isn't it time to center other writers and really ask our students to to read something that makes more sense or is more relevant to them?" And it is a hard question to answer. And sometimes I feel over biased towards Shakespeare sure. and think that I'm not going to be able to answer that question well because I love Shakespeare. But the fact that Shakespeare was performed, has been performed around the world and continues to be performed around the world, and that he was performed during the Third Reich, and that Thomas Carlyle loved Shakespeare, and that Samuel Taylor Coleridge, as he's becoming less anti-abolition or less abolitionist and more pro-slavery through his career, that's when he starts giving Shakespeare lectures. I'm like, why is is that happening? It means a lot of our cultural inheritance has been invested in Shakespeare in some way. So I feel like we need to get underneath that and really reclaim Shakespeare from those guys. And because Shakespeare obviously has currency, and I can't always, I will tell you my reasons why, but a different Shakespeare scholar or a right. director or an actor will tell you their reasons why. Everybody has a different reason why. So there's no point in me saying why Shakespeare's still around and why we should still study him, because I'll have a different answer than you will. Mm-hmm. But I do think that because he's been co-opted by dangerous elements and continues to be, that it's really important for us to get underneath that and reclaim Shakespeare. And the only way to do that is really by critically engaging with it and going, okay, hang on a minute. I don't really like that phrase. It's racist. I want to talk about performance and interpretation for a minute, because one of the virtues, I don't know, I find the whole Shakespeare industrial complex is too strong, but the whole miasma, use that in as mm-hmm. positive way as you can, to be so fascinating. And one of the fascinating pieces is it's not like on the origin of species or Huck Finn or Beloved, where you get the text And not only the text, you get a lot of paratext, you get interviews, you get letters, you have a whole 
apparatus of understanding the author and their intent and everything else. You get mm -hmm. almost none of that with Shakespeare yeah. for reasons that are fascinating. And because it's a performance-based medium, and we know so little about, we really know so little about how things were done. One that you mentioned that struck me is we don't know if these young men, boys who played women, what they did with their voices. This mm. is something, if you're listening to a podcast, especially the first edition, I know there's a lot of audiobook listeners out there. What does a narrator of one gender do when there's another gender or just another? Mm. What do they do with their voice? Those are decisions that have to be made. Yeah. There's no decisionless performance of Shakespeare out there. Mm. And every decision is a kind of interpretation. I think talking about performances are really like fertile ground, yeah. really, for thinking about Shakespeare, because obviously Shakespeare's plays were written to be performed. And when they were canonized by the folio seven years after he died, then they became this text that you had to learn and read. And of course, that becomes um, sacrosanct after a while. But the the what's beautiful about Shakespeare's plays in performance is that they're malleable, they're changeable, and they shift all the time. So it's, you see one Romeo and Juliet, you haven't seen them all. And I think that's what's really exciting about performance is that you can do your take on the play. And every, I've been working at the Globe for 19 years, and I've been in rehearsal rooms and seen lots of different versions of Romeo and Juliet, of Hamlet. And every director comes in there and goes, I'm going to do something really unique with this. And nine times out of 10, they do something unique with it. And other times it reads like just another production of Hamlet. Yeah. It doesn't matter. But the point is, it's never going to be like the one we did two years before that, because the times have changed. And so the concepts then change. The actors are different. The audience is different. And the expectations around it are different. I think one of the most, and I write about this production, one of the most amazing experiences I had watching Shakespeare was probably not... Titus Andronicus is my favorite play and one of my favorite productions in the That Grove, is hardcore but... Shakespeare stuff. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but Richard II mm. is, I, I talk about this play in the book as a, a real political manifesto play, right? Even in Shakespeare's own time, it was a political manifesto. And in 2019, we did the play at the Globe and it was an, a cast of entirely women of color, mm. British women of color. Because this play is about England and it's about the history of England and the question about who is English and who is entitled to this flag and who is entitled to this playwright. And Adjua Ando, who conceived the production and directed it and starred in it, was wanting to really reclaim mm. England from the empire and saying, we are here and we're not going anywhere. And we've been here a long time. And this play is our play as well. And I thought that was really powerful. That's the first time I've seen Richard II used in that way in a racialized context. Uh, and it was an extraordinary, it was a, a clap back to empire. And yeah, that's a probably a notable performance moment. Thanks so much to Professor Kareem Cooper for joining me. Thanks to Sharifa Williams and Jen Northington for joining me. The book is called Fit for the Gods, Greek Mythology Reimagined, out now. And then The Great White Bard, How to Love Shakespeare, or Thinking About Race. You can follow the show on Twitter, link in the show notes. Instagram, link in the show notes. The email newsletter, you got it right. There's a link in the show notes. If you've got time to review the show and rate it on Apple Podcasts, that would be fantastic. And lastly, I've gotten so much delight 
and I've learned so much. I've gotten so many good ideas from listeners emailing into me at first edition at bookriot.com. So if you've got something to say, say it, and I'll write back. And until next time, read something great.